Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. Today, we hear from Johnny the Jet Rogers. In 1972, as a member of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, Johnny was recognized as the best college football player in the country and winner of the coveted Heisman Trophy. We discuss the importance of resilience for him as an athlete. He shares how he overcame an injury that ended his career after six seasons of pro football and how resilience, grit, and a never give up attitude has helped him succeed in life decades after his pro career ended. We even talk about how his mindset helped him overcome a weeks-long COVID-19 hospitalization that many people around him thought would take his life. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Johnny, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Hey, what's up? I drove down from Minneapolis to Omaha thinking that I was going to interview an NFL football player, CFL football player, Heisman Trophy winner. And I realized after doing some research, some further research last night, that I'm interviewing an athlete, a true athlete. So maybe you could just educate our audience and talk about some of your exploits, athletic exploits over the course of your lifetime. Well, I don't even know where to start. I have fair amount of awards that I think I remember. I know I'm a uh, 72 Heisman Trophy winner, uh, the Husker Player of the Century, the most valuable player in the history of the Big 8 Conference, I'm ESPN's best punt returner ever, and ESPN's all-purpose uh, Hall of Fame in 2000, and Entrepreneur of the Year for a few years back, and I've uh, had the largest magazine in the history of San Diego called Tuned In San Diego, and I don't know. I don't want to take all the time on me. See? Wow. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just mention a couple that you missed. You okay. were drafted by the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yes, I was in high school. In high school. So baseball, football, you were a state champion in track. Is that accurate? I was a national champ in the long jump and the triple jump. That's bigger than the state. <laughs> and the state too, yeah. We're talking about resilience in season nine of 12 Geniuses. How would you define resilience? Well, it's never give up. I mean, on anything big or small, because it will become a habit. So you have to have that type of attitude that you just don't quit. You just find a way, another way to get it done. It's not, you don't think, you just do, uh, you're just on it. Uh, you make a decision to do whatever is necessary to, to do what you need to do. And when you don't do that, you find another way to, to be able to do that, but you just have to be committed. And I think I've been able to be resilient uh, through sports because I, I learned that you have to, in sports, you have to be Whoever gets tired first loses. And I think that's in business and in life, too. When people start failing or changing their ways, they're getting tired or they got too much going, are not able to focus on it. But whoever gets tired first loses. So the, the key is to athletics is you have to be in world-class condition. You have to run yourself and, and work yourself till you throw up. And so that physical aspect of it transfers over to mentally. So you have to be mentally tough because it's not that good. You, you can be the world-class condition, but if you're not mentally tough to be able to hang in there until that very end, I tell you, you got to hang in there to the wire, right down to the very end. I tell people I got wire burns all over my body. We're <laughs> <laughs> just hanging in to the, to the next deal. But I believe as long as you got oxygen, you just have to keep going. You have to be doing something that's beneficial, that you believe in, that's positive. I can't persevere on something that's negative or be resilient going in the wrong direction because how far you want to take yourself out of the game is how far you want to put yourself into the game, whatever it is, because it's not just a game, it's part of your life. And 
we don't have much time. That's what kind of keeps me motivated because the average life expectancy of people today are only 70 years, and that's 840 months. It don't take you this long to spend 840 or nothing. By the time you're 30, you use up 360 of your best time, your prime time. The time you burn that candle on both ends, you can do it all. That only gives you 480 more months to be able to get the job done or fill it through. And that's 25,200 days or a try. So the only time I really get to um, work on some of my important things is between midnight and five. I want to read a passage from this book called The Obstacle is the Way. Are you familiar with Ryan Holiday? No. This is one thing all great men and women of history have in common. Like oxygen to a fire, obstacles become fuel for the blaze that was their ambition. Nothing could stop them. They were impossible to discourage or contain. Does that quote resonate with you? Oh, yeah. I can relate to Harley. I mean, it's... um. It can be an obstacle, but as long as you, we all have obstacles every single day, but you, did, you can't, you're not looking for excuses, you're looking for results. So an obstacle that keeps you from doing what you, what you need to be doing is, I don't know of one other than death. I mean, you have to keep going to do what you need to do because once, once you're going in the right direction, it turns into a circle. What was bad yesterday is good tomorrow because everything changes, nothing stays the same. The only thing that's consistent is change. And we can make that change. Sometimes things aren't right. They're not going the right direction. So change, <laughs> you know, but we're waiting for other things to change when we need to change. That's the difference. If people think something else is going to change, it's not changing. We need to make that adjustment. We need to feel we're going to be able to find a way, and there is a way. We just are not there yet. And, and not being the human beings are not, I tell them like humans, we're not human beings, we're humans becoming. And we can get better and better every day as we go along. Uh, if we're just focused, and focus is F-O-C-U-S. You follow one course until you succeed. you got to keep your eye on the ball. It's just if you're willing to take yourself to that other level. If you don't do things that you've never done before, you will never see who you could be. You never know. We're, we're not using half of our potential uh, almost ever in what we do because we have never really been challenged uh, to do it. In uh, athletics, you can be challenged. Some things could come up where you better think of something else right now because the clock is running. And you only got that four quarters. And that and fourth quarter, ain't nothing happening until fourth quarter. <laughs> you better figure out a way. So you don't really think about it being resilience. It's just whatever is necessary to win. And winning isn't everything. I don't want people to think that. Winning really isn't everything. But in Nebraska, we rated right up there with oxygen. <laughs> it's pretty darn important. I wonder if you can talk about a few instances in your life when you've had to demonstrate great resilience. I think really, every, there's times when you have higher competitions than others. Uh, but sometimes you have to exert great resilience just to get up in the morning to do the things you don't really want to do. That. that it's nothing even special. So and let me just interrupt you there because we've been interacting now for a couple months, okay. right? And you always seem at the ready. You just seem ready to go. So you even have this hesitance to get out of bed. I'm, I'm going to do this again. That's kind of running through your mind sometimes. No one's going to take care of you if you don't. I need more exercise. I need more water. I need to change my diet. These are things you got to do for you because you like you. You can't dog yourself and act like other people are supposed to do things for you and you won't do things for yourself. Because you are first. You've got to be real selfish 
if you don't take care of yourself and you can't be acting like other people should be taking care of themselves because you have to be an example. Those kids and people don't do what you say. They do what they see you doing, period. You talked about how you were the player of the year in, in college football in 1972. You knew you were going to play in the NFL. Player of the century. Player of the century. <laughs> I mean, that's unbelievable. You knew that you were going to play in the NFL. What were your expectations leading up to being drafted and then eventually going to play in the CFL? I didn't have a NFL or a CFL. I had $100,000. I wanted to make $100,000. That was, that was that your was goal. My, that was my, I was 11 years old, and I heard $100,000 somewhere uh, was a lot of money, and it was more money than I'd ever heard of, and I wanted to get $100,000. So my whole life, was built around trying to get that $100,000. And I would tell people all the time that I was going to get 100000 My mother told me to stop telling people that because black people didn't get $100,000, and they don't think I was crazy and put me in a home. And I kept doing it anyway. Well, my first contract uh, came out with, uh, with the Los Angeles Dodgers. They offered me 25 Chargers? The Dodgers. Oh, the Dodgers to play baseball? To play baseball. No kidding. To play baseball at high school. And um, so I won $100,000. Uh, I went to camp. I made the team, but they offered me twenty five. And at that same time, I had an offer to go to the University of Nebraska on a scholarship because I was player of the year uh, for the state of Nebraska. So they wanted to recruit me down there. And um, I talked with uh, Bob Devaney, and he told me that if I came to Nebraska, that they would allow me to play baseball and football. And after my disappointment, uh, that I could put those two together and I could possibly have a way to get $100,000 if I played baseball and football. And so that sounded like a pretty good plan to me. And I was only 17 years old, so I figured I'd just keep pushing. Well, the next year, Coach Devaney came up and told me, no, maybe the year, the next year or the year after, they told me they wanted me to give up baseball and just focus on football. I said, damn, Coach. He told me that I could play football. You know what I'm trying to do here. He said, yeah, Johnny said it, but if you give up um, baseball willingly, that you'd be the first person that we've ever endorsed for the Heisman. And I said, well, put me in goals. <laughs> <laughs> that could be my way. Uh, Heisman, I might get the $100,000. So um, I got the Heisman, and I went to the San Diego Chargers, and they offered me 50000 I said, damn, maybe my mother was right. Maybe black people don't get $100,000. And, you know, I thought about it a while. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And I called up the Montreal Alouettes. I made an appointment, me and my agent, to, to go to, to, out to Montreal. And I got off the plane. And the owner of the team right there, he asked me, what is it going to take for you to, to bring that Heisman Trophy and uh, come play for the Alouettes? And I told him $100,000. And he said, okay. <laughs> right. He said, we. Uh, that's that's amazing. So you made twice as much in the CFL than the NFL team was was willing to pay you. At that time. At that time. Yeah. Okay. Eventually, they took over my contract, and I had a million-dollar contract. I was the first person to get a million. Uh, so they ended up paying me more later. It depends on who you're dealing with. I was dealing with Harlan Savari uh, at the time that I couldn't get the initial money from. Um, so it worked out, and uh, I, I really enjoyed Montreal and the Canadian Football League. And like I said, I wasn't thinking about the NFL was very young at the time. I mean, it might have only been three, four, five years way back then, you know, is right, right, right now. Right. So, and I didn't know the difference. I didn't know the difference. Uh, I won $100,000, period. And yeah. uh, I was the first person in my uh, family to graduate high school. 
So we didn't have a bunch of, I didn't have a bunch of mentors or leaders and who would have given me information on anything. So I just kept focused on what I was trying to do until I got it done. Again, I want to ask about expectations of what your football life might be like after college. What did you think? How long did you think you would play? You played six years of professional football, four in Montreal, and then um, I played part, four in Montreal and two in, in, in San, San Diego before I retired. Okay. Yes. And I was injured most of that too in San Diego most yes. of the time. So did you have an expectation that you were going to have a longer career than that? Because that is pretty long in the NFL, at least by today's standards. Well, I think it is. Uh, probably the average life expectancy for a player then is probably about two or three years. Right. I think. And, but I had no idea. I didn't. I had never really been injured injured. So at that particular point, I probably thought I was going to play for a long time. And time goes by so fast, as I've, I've told you, that, that that was just a little bit of time. So when I did get injured, uh, one of my teammates stepped on my foot and, and cracked my kneecap. And uh, I was out, period. So I had no idea how many years uh, I was going to play. I was just in the now. And I'm curious because it was a career-ending injury and you had to demonstrate resilience then. What was your mindset at that time? And then how did you get through making the transition to life after football? I've always had an entrepreneur-type spirit. So I've always been trying to do my own thing, no matter what. When I was 14 years old, I ran away from home. I took my grandfather's car and, and went to Detroit. So I, I've had a deal, but um, I, I, I've always believed in divine intervention as well. You, the thoughts are not just things. Thoughts are the cause of things. And if you hold a thought long enough, you can have it. So you have to think on some things. I was fortunate enough that being in Montreal, Montreal is like being in Paris. It's just like, you know, it's just a flair. It's a great city. It's a great city of love. And, you know, it, it, a lot of things going on all the time. And um, I ended up in San Diego. San Diego had, at the time, had the largest saturation of cable in the whole United States, but they didn't have a, a, a magazine. They didn't have a way for listings. Being from Montreal uh, and having a little, I, I, I majored in uh, communications, that I came up with an idea to have a, a, a cable TV magazine. And so uh, I called it Tuned In San Diego. And I took the entertainment aspects of what they did in Montreal to feature that in San Diego, which they had quite a bit going on there, locked it in with the cable TV, all the listings, because TV Guide didn't have a magazine for, for a cable. It, with the largest saturation of cable, all they had was network TV. So I came up with an idea to put those two together, and I was able to have the largest magazine in the history of San Diego. It just took off like a fire. Huh. Yeah. And, and did you have... Did you struggle mentally to, to make this transition or were you just like, okay, football's done for me. I'm going to go down the entrepreneurial route. Well, the big thing I struggled with is that they told me I wasn't going to walk. Oh. And I told them, I, you know, I, I can see not playing, but I can't see not walk. And so I struggled around in a wheelchair and crutches for a year or two, but um, and, you know, I got back on, in the game. That was really what my thing was. As long as I could think, I figured I was going to be able to do something. Didn't know what I was going to do until we did it. Didn't know how I was going to get it. You know, to, to start a magazine, it's very expensive to be able to do that, to get outlets all across the county, it's very, to get a staff to do that. Those are the things that are far more challenging than just what, I, what can I do to make it. I'm not ever trying to just make it. I'm always trying to do something a little more grandiose than just making it. So if I fall, then I still be all right. If I don't get to where I'm going, I'm still going to be out there far enough where I just keep the deal going. But 
you don't know what the next step is until you, unless you create it. A lot of times, particularly athletes, after their career is over, they struggle with their identity. And I wonder if you, th if you were really embracing the identity of an athlete or if, if, you didn't, if that didn't really matter to you after your career was over. Well, other than the time that I was crippled, I've still been an athlete. I have been a paid athlete. You know, but I've spent, still been an athlete. I played basketball with my kids. Uh, I never let them win. I bowl. I never let them win. I've always been an athlete, and I think that's mental. Now, we met in 2020, and then in 2021, I learned that you got COVID. And Vince told me, he said you were in the hospital. And I thought you were gone. And I wonder, well, you know, what was going through your mind at, at that point? Because you were in the hospital for quite some time, right? I was in the hospital for a month. At least a month, six weeks, something like that. They wanted me to get on the, um, what do they call it? They wanted to put you to sleep. What do they call it? Ventilator. Yeah, ventilator. Okay. So I told them, no way. I couldn't get on the ventilator because the ventilator is where they put you to sleep and you're just on a machine. and you, That's the end. The, well, For a lot of people, it was the end. Right? That was the end. Right? I think the thing that makes a difference is that I was, they got me a, another machine and I was sipping air, sipping down to the sip. But as long as I could sip, you're alive. I was fine. Yeah, I could keep. I could keep going, and that was the thing. I just wanted to be on, just a shot. You know, nothing's guaranteed, but a shot. And I wasn't going to go on the ventilator and, and give up and put it in somebody else's hand. I was going to turn around myself and find a way. And it was never ever a thought that I would thought I was going to die. Die. I could sick enough to die, but as long as I was alive, I was alive. I wasn't dead. And I sipped that air until I sipped more, and then I got on a smaller machine and a smaller machine until I actually got off. So I was just sick. I wouldn't. I didn't think I was dying. I, I couldn't breathe, but I couldn't. I was still breathing. Well, a lot of people would say that's dying <laughs> when you can't when you can't breathe. But maybe that's but, but part you're of breathing. The, but, but you're breathing. Yes, but maybe that's part of the of your success is this mindset. Like it never entered into your mind that you were going to die, but. Most people would say, well, you're in the hospital. You don't want to go in the hospital, number one. Right. You know, if you've got that at that time, you didn't want to go to the hospital. No, I stayed home as long as I could. Yeah. yeah. I didn't, didn't want to go. I wasn't going. But, but the, the question then is, how important was that mindset of, you know, never considering you're going to die? Like that, that's, well, that's got to be half the battle. The consider, you'd have to kill me. You could kill me, but I'm not going to die. Going to die, to me, is like you just give up. Then you're going to die. But I've been close to death many a time, you know, yeah, with gunfights, knife fights, beatings, you know, all different types of things. But you never think about dying. Dying's a whole nother level. Like I said, I can get killed. But dying means you give up some type of way. Now, you can, you can just be at home and decide you, you're just tired of the pain. I mean, not long ago, I hurt my back. And the pain was so bad, I thought about dying. <laughs> I really thought I could, because I couldn't take it if it kept on like that for that a lot more time. And I, I never had known. I've been in professional football and baseball. I've done all different type of things, but I never knew that consistent pain because you have it all the time. So you could, if I had it all the time, I could see how people have it that you don't die, you kill yourself. You want to die, man. Yeah. See, I never wanted to die. I never wanted to point 
Well, I thought that it was too much that I really couldn't handle it and I couldn't turn around because, like I said, ain't nothing happened until fourth quarter. And that was just like fourth quarter. And so you expected to do more in fourth quarter. Well, you're going to live to 100, so you're still in the third quarter. 125. 125. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. I'm still playing racquetball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling good shape now. I'm 70. I do more than most people I know. Yeah, absolutely. Right you know, now. You return phone calls a lot faster than anybody I know. Oh. <laughs> so we touched on a, a few elements of of resilience. There's the physical, there's the emotional, there's the social, family, and spiritual or purpose. What we haven't talked about is the importance of social relationships, your family in your resilience. And I, I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit because, you know, the physical and the emotional, I think most people understand what that is. Like, you know, the stronger you are, the more prepared you are, the better rested you are, the more resilient you're going to be, the more mentally tough you are, the more resilient you're going to be. If you've got a purpose, you can, you know, he who has a, a why can survive anyhow, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's spiritual and purpose. But what we haven't talked about relationships, and you seem like a a great relationship guy, and I wonder how important your relationships have been to your resilience. Well, back to sports. I believe anything you can do by yourself ain't big enough. Teamwork makes your dreams work. You don't win Heisman trophies by yourself. You don't win national championships by yourself. You don't build a great business by yourself. You don't do life by yourself. It's always in conjunction with others that you make your great accomplishments, and teamwork makes your dreams work. And I think this to interact, when two or more people can come together in the spirit of agreement and harmony, then, then you can create from the universe things you weren't able to do by yourself. That's when you have real power. So the more people that you're interacting with, or that you're in karma, what goes around comes around. So the more people you can help and you can do and you can inter interact, the stronger and more present you can be. And that's how I have access. I have access because of my relationship, you know, because I have a long reach and experience with other people that we've done things together and then they go out and they do things and they create a bigger power base that we have access to because of their friends and their power. So it goes on and on. So when people start thinking all this you got to do by yourself, never are you by yourself. And whenever you can realize that and you can include more in, you don't push people away. You pull more in because you can't do nothing significant by yourself. None of us. I don't think. No, you're right. Really? Even even those who are doing individual sports have a team around them. The trainers, Sometimes. nutritionists, coaches. Exactly right. Yeah. Without that support, they wouldn't be able to be who they are. Yeah. You don't do anything you do by yourself ain't big enough. You could do better if you just get two. Two. That's when the power comes. Two or more. You said that growing up you didn't have a mentor. When did you start? leveraging mentors? Well, I didn't have a father growing up. I didn't know my father until I was 17. And, uh, I think my father wanted to come around. I'm not sure he was even my father, but he wanted to come out because I was popular. Uh, but I did have quite a few mentors coming up because I was good at sports. So my first gymnastic coach in grade school, uh, he became a mentor. Charles B. Washington, that was George Barber. And then Charles B. Washington, uh, he's uh, one of our activists from the Omaha Star. He he was one of my mentors. My football coaches always were mentors, basketball, baseball. All of my coaches, my baseball coach just died here just a few weeks ago. Uh, 
but I've had mentors all the whole way of my life because I didn't have a father uh, coming up. So I had other people that took over that, that place and that, those responsibilities and led me and I, I listened to and uh, they helped me. So I've never really been alone, not alone, you know, and I, and I don't think I'm the smartest uh, person in the world. Like I don't need direction. I don't need help. And because I've gotten quite a bit of help and direction, Tom Osborne was there, uh, Bob Devaney uh, was there. And because of these people who have given to me, it helps me without question to be able to give back, uh, not just to my family, but to, to the community, because I believe that we're all a family, you know, and all the people are, are really should be more closer together. And the more we can come together, the more access we all have uh, to be. So I'm pulling them in faster than we're pushing them out. And so we are able to help more people, and then more people help us. And if they don't help us, they still can help more people, you know, because it has to come a time where we're, we're trying to, we're trying to flow instead of fight, you know, or flight and get away. It's all about the being able to flow together, uh, to keep the chain going, you know, and to keep a positive attitude going. I am more things so you can really see who you can be because you, you have no idea all you can be, you know, but, the younger ones, they don't see, like I said, they do what they see you doing. You can tell them right straight out the box what they need to be doing. They're not going to listen to you, but they're watching. They're always watching. Always. And they, and they don't do what you say. They do what they see you doing. And so you have to live that. And you're not living it. <laughs> you know, you're living it because you know that they're watching. It's going to come out to light some point in time, the things that are really going on, whether you notice it or not. And you just got to give it. If you believe in the creator and a, a higher power, you've got to be known to appreciate your power to get more power. you got to use what you got as best you can, and you'll be fine. I mean, you don't feel guilty or you don't do something that, you, as long as you don't do something where you're so ashamed of yourself that you don't like yourself, then you can pull from the universe to pretty much get anything you've done you want to get done. Yeah. Because you've, you earned it. You used it wisely, what, what you've been given. The reason why I wanted to do this this season on resilience is because I feel like we need as a society more resilience. People have to, when they see an obstacle in their way, not stop. What advice do you have? Because you work with a lot of young people. What advice do you have for young people when they meet a challenge? You know, because this, this is something that we need to figure out because otherwise, you know, we're going to have a generation of quitters or people who say, right. you know, are, are hopeless and, and we don't oh, want that. I was just telling my grandfather, granddaughter today, <laughs> yeah, when, when things are tough, uh, you do more. You don't do less. And you can't quit on anything big or small because it will become a habit. So you don't want to build that habit. You work yourself through things. And like I said, now, you can stop doing something to do something else if you replace it with something better. But you can't quit doing what you're doing for something less because things tradition on that you're building on. You don't want to create less. You want to create more. And it's all, we're creators, we're co-creators. We can create, like I said, things come to us if we believe. You just have to believe it and be willing to put in the work to do it. Like I was telling her, I was running heels and, 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 and sprints until I throw up because I want to do more. Now, I'm tired. I can say I need to rest. But when you say you're tired and you need to rest, that's the sign that you need to do more. You need to work through that pain or that challenge or whatever. But you can't, you can't start quitting on anything or else you... You'll always find a reason why you could quit. And have you always had this incredible mental toughness? Well, time has went by so fast that I guess I've always had it because that's just the way it's been. 
Uh, and that's the way it's always been. Yeah. You know, I, I never think about it. If you want to do it. Now, there's things I don't choose, I don't choose not to do because I don't want to do them uh, or haven't made a commitment. But if I commit to do it, I'm we're really going to try yeah. uh, all I can to really do it. And, and like I said, if you are committed, somebody, somebody's going to come help you. Somebody's going to come help you. And they, they could bring an army, <laughs> you know. You have no, you have no, but you have to hold your, your position until you get to where you're going or where you need to be. You are an optimist. Do you have a a purpose that you keep in mind that's that's really important to you that drives you? And then how are you executing on that purpose? The thing that could help us all do more is if we can just have access to more smarter people than ourselves. When we get, when we're around smarter people, when we we got it going on, they don't even have to have money, but it could be smarter people to help us do more things, or people start doing more things together. That's when we're really going to be able to fulfill our purpose because they can help us do what we're trying to get done, and we can help them do what they're doing. And then all those people together, that we have a really group of people that are thinking positively and doing more positive things. You have a podcast with Eric Crouch, who is also a Nebraska Heisman Trophy winner. It's called Husker Heisman Huddle. Right. What do you talk about? Simply the best. What do you talk about there? <laughs> well, we talk about the Husker football primarily and uh, the state of the Husker football, the players in the Husker football, former players, uh, where we like to go, the players that we're recruiting, uh, our coaching staff, and we talk about winning. We talk about winning. We talk about attitudes because we, we, we have had winning experiences. I mean, we've been, a lot of people have went through life and don't really have a lot of successes going on that they can really put, they can really look forward to. But when they can see sometimes how far back we were to where we come, it gives them hope that they can do it too because they can do it. But they have to see sometimes they always think that you just, you just got it going on. You just got it made. You know, they have no idea about the bad stories and the time that you do think about giving up or you're injured or like you said, when I, when I cracked my kneecap, when I, oh, my football was over, I did not have a traumatic experience. I just moved on to another level, another cycle of doing things and getting what I need to have done in another way then. I couldn't do that anymore. I don't really, I, I, I can't say that I even miss it because I was going to grow out of it anyway. You can't play pro sports for that long in the beginning, to begin with. So even though I got out in, after six years, I was probably three or four years more than most of them that actually came in. So I weirdly was kind of prepared it came as a surprise, but I was kind of prepared to go to the next level, had to do things in another way. And it doesn't make any difference what those things are, as long as you have that, apply that same attitude that you had in football to the business aspect that you do and to your community service that you do. It's all attitude. It's, it's your intestinal fortitude. It's the living by example that, that you give and you do. And nothing's changed. Nothing really changed in my life in the whole thing, except for the directions that I might want to apply that energy in and to try to develop. Well, Johnny, you said you're going to live to 125. That's 53 years from now. I hope to have this podcast going for a long time. I don't know, about 53 years. I'll be years. on again then. <laughs> so, yes, that's, that's uh, my way of inviting you back on oh, again. I'll be here for a while. They got me right where I want them. Thank you for your time, <laughs> and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. 
We will be back next week with University of Minnesota professor, Dr. Ann Mastin, who will discuss her work in developing resilience in children and families facing adversity. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.